if you didn't get one of these schedules, Chris has a copy in the back. You'll, you'll want one of those because it'll especially will give you uh, the dates of when we're going to cover the chapters in this book, which starts next Thursday. So chapter one is next Thursday. Um, so the idea there is come ready to discuss that. There are discussion questions in the back of each chapter. And um, I'm going to divide you up into groups for that discussion. And there'll be a discussion leader for each group to walk you through the questions in the back of that chapter. Also, by the way, last week when I broke you up into groups, we're going to do that at the end every time. But the, the groups will change some. So I didn't want you to think that that's going to be your group for the rest of the time. The group that you'll be in with uh, for your book, that'll be the same every time. Uh, but I want you to get, part of this is I want you to get to meet other men. And so <clears throat> we will switch it up on days like today. I'll give you some time at the end and we'll switch it up so you get to meet different people. But that book discussion group will always be the same, okay? Because that's the one where we're really dealing particularly with issues of purity, things like that, holding each other accountable in that regard. So just wanted to clarify that. But make sure you have this. Also, there are a couple of months where we have holidays and things like that, so we don't get to meet as many weeks as we would in other months. But in order for us to make it through the book uh, this year, we will always do a book discussion. You'll notice if I cut something out, it won't be the book discussion because otherwise we won't uh, finish on time. So just make sure you're making your way through that, and we'll discuss it next week. But this morning, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Now, as we think about being men who are leaders in our home and in the church, one of the biggest issues that we have to face is, are we willing to fight our own sin? Are we going to war day in and day out with our own heart sins? And so part of what we're going to do in our time together is just talk through um, some of the, the primary heart sins that all of us deal with and struggle with. Obviously, the book... Uh, that we're doing will deal with the issue of lust in particular. But as you know, that our hearts are, are deceitful and wicked, and it's at least our, our flesh. Even though we have a new nature, our new nature is in, in conflict with our sinful flesh, and we need to know how do we fight that. And if we're going to shepherd our wives to do that, and our kids to do that, and disciple others in the church to do that, we've got to be sure that we're doing that. So I'm going to be talking a lot about issues of the heart, and specifically this morning, we're going to deal with the matter of discontentment, the sin of discontentment. Because discontentment is a sin that, that all of us can deal with, uh, and, and all of us do deal with at different times. And the Apostle Paul is a, a, a prime example of how do we deal with the sin of discontentment when life doesn't go the way we thought it would go. And let's just be honest, life doesn't go the way we think it will go. We live in a fallen world. Um, when we make plans, we have to plan for those plans to change because the reality is they probably will. Paul was a master at trusting the Lord in the midst of circumstances that were constantly changing. It, as we look at this particular epistle, remember Paul is in prison as he writes this. And that's helpful for us because it brings context to what he says and the context that he himself is living in as he gives us instruction. There are other prison epistles that were written in the same prison cell, such as Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. But this particular 
epistle is one of my favorites because it really just deals with basic Christian li- living. How do we have joy? How do we have unity in Christ? And, and, and what should be our perspective on the issues and trials of life? So Philippians is, is very, it's a simple book in a lot of ways, and yet profound in its application. There's not a lot of deep doctrine in the book of Philippians. There, there is some, things like the kenosis and chapter 2, things like that. But there's a lot of practical life application of how do we live the Christian life in the book of Philippians. And we're going to see that this morning. And in verses 10 to 13, which verse 13 is probably the most famous verse in all of the book, but in verses 10 to 13, Paul gives us three lessons on the subject of contentment. And what he's going to tell us is this, contentment is not an issue of circumstance. It's an issue of spiritual maturity. Contentment is not an issue of circumstance. It's an issue of spiritual maturity. And so the first lesson here is a sanctified view of gratitude. A sanctified view of gratitude in verse 10. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I'm going to read verses 10 to to 14. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, but for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction." So here in verse 10, we have this first lesson on uh, contentment, and it's a, a sanctified view of gratitude. Verse 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Now notice he says, I rejoiced greatly. This, these words are emphatic. It's over the top. He's overjoyed, but he doesn't just say, I rejoiced greatly. He says specifically, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you've revived your concern for me. Now that's, that's instructive for us because it helps us understand that Paul's gratitude is not centered primarily in the gift that he's received from these people. By the way, that's the context. The Philippians have sent to Paul a financial gift. He, again, he's in prison, and at that time, for you to, to make it in prison, obviously you can't work while you're in prison, and, and, and you have a lot of basic needs And so the way the system worked is you were dependent on outside help, loved ones to care for you uh, financially, to give you things for clothing, food, things like that. And so Paul's just received this this gift from the Philippians, and he's saying thank you for the gift that he's given. And, And yet he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly in the Lord. And it shows us that Paul understood what we call God's providence. Providence is a word you need to know. Providence is, is a key theological truth. It's one that we ought to love and have a deep understanding of. And providence essentially is defined like this. If it, this is Burkhoff in his systematic theology. He, he defines providence as that continued exercise of divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures, 
is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. Let me, let me say that again. It's a long definition. There's three, three key words. Preserves, operative, and directs. So three things God does when we talk about providence. He preserves all His creatures. He's operative in all that comes to pass in the world. And He directs all things to their appointed end. With providence, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. That all things that happen in life, down to the smallest details, are in the hands of God. MacArthur notes on this point that God operates in the world in two primary ways. We, we could think of God's operation in the form of a miracle. That's an interruption of the natural flow that God has made. You think about a miracle means something happens that doesn't happen. That's why it's a miracle. A blind person receives their sight. The dead are raised to life. Seas are parted. That's a miracle. God has operated miraculously throughout history, but that is not the norm for God and the way He operates. Instead, the normal day-to-day, all-day-long, everyday way that God operates in the world is through providence. And providence is God sovereignly working within the system that He has made in the creative order to work in and through the decisions and the actions of human beings to bring about His ultimate plans for His ultimate ends. That's providence. And that's what Paul believed. That's why Paul can say, I received a financial gift from you, but I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Because the gift did come from the Philippians. But but he understands that ultimately it came from the hand of God. There's other examples of believers uh, trusting in God's providence that are impactful. Turn for a second to the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. This is the, the end of the Joseph narrative. You remember Joseph, sold by his brothers as a slave, taken as a slave into Potiphar's house, put in prison, brought out of prison, becomes the right-hand man to Pharaoh, and now his family has been brought to live with him there in Egypt, and Joseph's father dies, and his brothers start to get pretty nervous that maybe Joseph now has been waiting for dad to die before he takes out his revenge on us for selling him into slavery. And so, In verse 15 of chapter 50, when brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of, in God's place? As for you, this is key, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What does Joseph say? He says, yes, you you sinned against me. You legitimately meant evil against me. 
And the truth is, we're, people are we're held accountable for our sin. They'd be held accountable for the sin against their brother. But then he says, in the same action that you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Not just for me, but for all of us, he says, because he's provided for us by bringing me here. This is providence. This is what Paul understood. We could turn back to Philippians. This is what Paul understood when he writes these words, and it's what we have to understand as we begin to think about our lives. <clears throat> Everything in your life is a result of the sovereign hand of God. The best days and the worst come from a good hand of God that He means to bring glory to Himself and to bring spiritual good to you. Now, looking back at the, the passage, verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Now, notice again, Paul doesn't say, I'm thankful in the Lord greatly that you sent me a financial gift. He says, I'm grateful that now at last you revived your concern for me, which is also instructive for us. Because Paul is primarily thankful not for the gift itself, but for what it means about those who gave it. He First of all, he says, now at last, apparently there, there's been some time since the last time Paul received a gift from the Philippians. We know that he received other gifts from the Philippians, but for circumstances were not told. Maybe, maybe Paul was not in need, or maybe the, the church fell on hard times and couldn't send him a gift, whatever it was. It's been some time since he received a gift from them. But notice he says, you have revived your concern for me. That, that word revived is a, a word that's used often of trees and plants blooming in springtime as if they've been dormant throughout the winter, and now they burst into bloom. That's what he, the, the word picture here. You've, you've, you've burst into bloom again by giving to me this gift. But it's not the gift. He says, it's your concern for me. That's the heart of Paul's joy, is the concern, the love, and the care that they've shown for Paul in giving the gift. It's not the monetary gift. And this is helpful for us to know that Paul wasn't sitting in his prison cell wringing his hands, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this pickle? That's not the way that Paul lived his life. So when the gift comes, he's grateful for the gift, but what really stirs his heart is what he knows it means about the affection of those who gave it. And not just the affection for him, but their affection for Christ. Why did they love Paul so much? Because Paul was the one who administered to them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was an overflow of their love for Christ that flowed over onto Paul. And so as, as Paul thinks about this, that's what stirs his heart. More than the gift, it is what it means about the giver. <clears throat> he says, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Again, we don't know why they lacked opportunity, but for some reason, they, they couldn't give him a gift previously, but now they have. And so this is instructive for us. What are, from the things that we've said so far, just in this first verse here, what are some things that, that stick out to you that should be convicting to us about particularly our perspective of gratitude? Think about that. What are some, some things that stand out about Paul's perspective of gratitude that ought to convict us? He's content regardless of circumstances. Yeah, R regardless of his circumstances, he's content. 
What else? We tend to focus more on the gift rather than the one who provided that gift ultimately. Yeah, for sure. We can definitely be more excited about the, the physical gifts. Even from childhood, it starts, right? We get excited about our gifts and we forget to, we're always telling our kids, say thank you, say thank you. Think about the giver, right? <clears throat> what else? It seems he's focused on the intent hmm. of those who are caring for him. Yeah. Yeah, and and he's moved by it, yeah. right? Um, as he thinks, because I rejoice greatly in the this is emphatic language. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you revived your concern for me. This it's it's con, it's convicting for us. A, to trust God's providence, that realizing that all things that come to us ultimately come by God's hand, even things that come as the, as the result of hard work on our part still ultimately come as a gift from God's hand. Who gave you the job and who gave you the physical ability to do it and an employer that was willing to pay you to do it? God did. So still it comes from God's hand. So there's the providence aspect. But then there's the people aspect of just... How much when someone blesses us, and we, we have a, a generous church, we have a loving church, and so it's not unlikely at all if, if you haven't already benefited in some way um, from someone in the church, you certainly will. When that happens, is the response to think about whatever the benefit was or to think about what it means about the, that person and what God's doing in their life and their overflow of their love for Christ onto you. It's a good reminder to be concerned more with people than with things. But he goes on to a second lesson in verses 11 and 12, and this is a sanctified view of circumstance. So he had a sanctified view of gratitude in verse 10, a sanctified view of circumstance in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. The word want there, not that I speak from want, means to lack. And it's further clarifying that his gratitude shouldn't be mistaken as desperation. He didn't see himself as lacking anything. Now, he may actually have lacked many things, basic necessities of life, but he didn't see himself that way. Again, he wasn't in a woe is me depressive state in his cell wringing his hands. He had not lost hope in God. Though he was, he was imprisoned, again, this is, the times were tough. He's in a prison cell for sure. And from a human standpoint, it seems pretty difficult. That, that just wasn't his perspective because, again, he knew if I'm in prison, then I have a prison ministry because that's where God's put me. Right? This, it was, his view was consumed with the providence of God. And what he's teaching us here is something that we need to practice in our own lives. Because he goes on to say, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now let's break that apart. How does he begin? For I have been born understanding. Is that what he says? I've learned. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance. That's instructive for us. Contentment is not a natural ability. 
Now, of course, we all have different dispositions, and some people are just naturally more glass half full, and some are more glass half empty. That, that is true. But can, true biblical contentment is an issue of spiritual maturity that God, by His grace, brings about over time in us as He sanctifies us. It's, it's not a natural ability that we're just born knowing how to do. And he says, I've learned to be content. Let's talk about contentment. What is contentment? <clears throat> the word deals with a sense of, of happiness or satisfaction in your circumstance. Um, <clears throat> if you've ever had children and you've had the privilege of, of feeding that child a bottle, then you, you know what contentment looks like. When you get that baby, they're screaming their head off like they've, you've never fed them in their lives, right? Even though a few hours ago you just fed them and you get them and you're, you're trying to get the bottle in there and then they get it in there and they're, you know, they're like a wolf just wolfing that thing down. And then about 10 minutes into that, their eyes start to glaze back and roll back in their head and they just, they call it the milk coma. You've seen the kids in the, that's, that's contentment. Right. And and the idea is, as a Christian, we're to learn by God's grace to live in that sense of satisfaction and joy, regardless of what's going on around us. Paul says, that's what I've learned. I've learned to be satisfied at all times, regardless of my circumstance. And he says, in whatever circumstance, I mean, notice the word whatever. He's going to say this over and over again in such a way that we just really can't get around how inclusive and exhaustive this is. There's just, there's just no way to say, yeah, but Paul, my, you don't understand. My circumstance, there's just no way to insert that because he, he uses words like whatever and all and every. And he means that when he says that. In whatever circumstances I am. And... Just to make it really clear, he's going to list three examples, three scenarios of circumstances. Scenario number one is poverty versus prosperity. He says, I know, verse 12, how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. Literally, when he says, I know how to get along with humble means, he says, I know how to be brought low. Has God ever brought you low? It can be a tough experience. Maybe you're on a career path and you've been working hard and you worked your way up the ranks and you get to, to you know, you're 10 years out from retirement. Everything is lining up and all the boxes are checked and your employer has layoffs and you're done. A lot of guys that happens and you're at an age now where it's difficult to get hired, right? Because you have so much experience and they don't want to pay what you're worth. And so that can be a really tough time. It's just one example. But guys get excited to get married as, as I hope you, if you're a young man, I hope you are. And marriage is a great gift, but, but we have these expectations we bring into marriage and then you finally get married and you realize, Oh, wait a minute. Like this is, this is harder than I thought. Right. I have to work at communicating and being self. I'm a lot more selfish than I ever knew that I was. And, and so is she. And so we're having to, we're having to work this out. Right. And Oh yeah, we forgot. It's a fallen world. Right. It's, and so we're going to have to work at these things. Paul says, I know what it is to be brought low. And that's the point he's making here. He's going to use a, a lot of illustrations that deal with money, prosperity, either money or possessions. But understand that <clears throat> the principles go far beyond that. They certainly deal with money and possessions. They go to anything. He says, I know how to live in prosperity as well. 
Which is also interesting because Paul indicates that there are temptations that come with prosperity, just like there are temptations that come with being brought low. We often think of being brought low as the more difficult circumstance, um, and in some ways it is. But when it comes to sinful temptations, there's a whole host of sinful temptations that wait on the other side of prosperity as well. As you know, if you've ever reached that goal that you worked for so hard. Again, here comes one of those exhaustive statements. Looking back at the passage, verse 12, halfway through the verse, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. In any and every... There's that word I've learned again. In any and every circumstance, that's exhaustive. It's another way just to say every. I've learned... The secret, now he reveals there's a secret to this. It's not just that he's somehow learned several principles. It's really one particular thing. There's a, a, literally, it's the word mystery. The word mystery in the New Testament is a, is a popular word. Paul especially uses it, and it refers to something that was previously unknown, but now has been revealed by God. And that's what's happened here in this case. I've learned a mystery. I've learned a secret. Now, the secret doesn't come yet until verse 13, and we'll get to that. But he says, I've learned how to do this by God's grace. And in doing that, he gives us two more scenarios that just highlight the same thing. Scenario number two is hunger versus being filled. I know what it is to be hungry or to be filled and to be hungry. So he deals with the issue of food. That's one that in our current context, we don't deal with as much, at least not in the legitimate sense. None of us are truly hungry. We're lavish with wonderful food this morning. Um, If we're hungry, it's by choice, typically. But still, we understand the concept of going without or having. We also probably understand the concept better of having food, but maybe not being able to eat the food that we would like to eat. We understand that. And then scenario number three is provision versus neediness. If you look back at the passage, uh, both of having abundance and suffering need. These are more broad terms. Having more than I need and then having less than I need. Lacking the basic necessities of life. Now, as we think about this, it's important that we remind ourselves of Paul's uh, credentials. Paul knew what he was talking about. Just tell me off the top of your head, what are some of the difficult circumstances Paul went through in his life? Jail. Yeah. Physically beaten. One time he got beaten so bad. I mean, this always stands out to me. They stoned him and they were so confident that he was dead. They drug him outside the city and they stoned him and they left. And afterwards the disciples come around him and he's revived. But I mean, they, they weren't trying to hurt him. They were trying to kill him. And they almost did. What are some other circumstances? When he says abundance, he really kind of was on the top of this game there. <clears throat> You know, right. At a certain point in his life, right. He really had so. he had risen in the ranks in Judaism for sure, for sure, yeah. um, and uh, and gave up all of that to to follow Christ. Freezing cold was cold. Yeah, knew what it was to be in cold without sufficient clothing. What else? <clears throat> Shipwrecked. I mean, middle of the ocean, in the middle of the night. Ship goes to pieces. His initial meeting with Christ, being blinded. I mean, going from yeah. 
Yeah, physically lost his eyesight. What else? What, what else did Paul endure? Got bit by a snake. Yeah, got bit by a snake. Think about what are some of the relational hardships Paul went through. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at the point of conversion, he gives up all these relationships, which couldn't have been easy. What about some of the relationships after he came to Christ? Trust. He was Mark on his first mission trip. Yeah. So John Mark on the first mission trip abandons him. Thankfully, he comes back later. What? What? What else? All the churches. Yeah, he's got the pressure of the churches. Why does he write 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? Rejection. Yeah. Rejection. People that he loved, gave his life for, preached the gospel to for years, and yet he has to write 2 Corinthians to defend his apostleship. There's people in the church actually questioning whether or not he's legitimate in his apostleship. That's hard. Not to mention in 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to this. This is his last letter, of course, to Timothy. This is really near the end of his life. He's, <clears throat> he's passing the mantle to Timothy. He says, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 11, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. He knew what it was to have people leave the faith and walk away from his ministry. That's what he's describing here with Demas. Um, he, he's, he says uh, in that same chapter elsewhere, at, at first uh, he is, he is uh, opposed very uh, openly, publicly by someone in a way that's difficult. And he warns Timothy to watch out for this guy. And then he says, at, my, at first no one came to my defense, but the Lord stood with me. All right. So he knew what it was to experience the physical hardships of life, and he knew what it was to experience the relational hardships of life and to be betrayed and to be uh, left and, and falsely accused and falsely understood. And yet he says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to being content. I go through all of that just to help us understand we're not talking about small things here. And so your circumstance, whatever it is, fits in the same box of any and every. And just as he learned the secret to contentment, we have access to the same secret, as we'll see. A couple of quick implications here. Number one, both need and abundance can tempt us towards discontentment, as we said. And it's a reminder... <clears throat> Ultimately, that discontentment cannot be cured by the accumulation of things. And that's because discontentment is not produced by circumstances. It's produced when we respond sinfully to our circumstances. There's no circumstance in your life that can make you discontent. There are many circumstances that will tempt you to be discontent. But if you're discontent, it's because you've allowed sin in your heart. That's the honest truth. You know, the millionaire wants to be a multimillionaire. The multimillionaire wants to have hundreds of millions. The, that person wants billions, so on and so forth. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Things can never satisfy. So I would say people... 
and things can never satisfy the sin of discontentment because it's not a matter of things. Discontentment, I like to think of it like a black hole. Discontentment will grow to the size to absorb whatever you want to throw in there and be ready for more. You know this, just with simple things. I got, I got a new phone the other day. Um, you ever gotten a new phone? Get real excited about it? How, how long does that excitement last? Yeah. And then I read, they came out with a new one, just like they announced a new one yesterday. <laughs> I'm already behind, right? So it's, it, it, this, that's a trivial example, but we, but we have that played out in our life on, in a number of ways all the time. The, the newest, latest, greatest. Uh, you know, we, we get our heart set on just when I get that promotion. I just got to get to that level, that tier, and then we'll be okay. You know, we're just, we got to get into this house. I'm in this house and it doesn't work, but, but we're going to save. We're going to get in that house. And when we get in that house, everything, we, we play that game. And, and we, well, suddenly, at some point, we have to realize it's not about the house. It's not about the relationships. It's, not about, it's about sin in our hearts. Paul says, in, in any and every circumstance, I've learned. Some of the spiritual dangers of abundance. Let's just talk about this for a second. What are some of the spiritual sinful temptations we face when we have, when God has blessed us with more than we need? Pride. Pride. Yep. Slothfulness. Yeah. Laziness. We indulge in those things. Yeah, overindulging. Right. Yeah. What else? We rely on those things instead of God. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a sense of self-sufficiency. I made it. Lack of recognition to God for providing us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lack of gratitude, you might say. What? A, I have a sense of power in that mm. because I have this. Yeah. A sense of personal significance based on what you have. Let's flip it around. What are the spiritual dangerous temptations of, of need? When you have a legitimate need, how does your heart tempt you to sin? Take from someone that has something that you want. Say again? Take something. Take something, something. yeah. So, so stealing, yeah. What else? Just give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coveting. So who said what? Coveting. Yeah, coveting. Covetousness. Anxiety. Anxiety and worry. Mm -hmm. Temptation to doubt God, His goodness, yeah. or His ability to help us. Yeah. So, on the one hand, on the prosperity side, we, we have a tendency to forget God. Temptation. On this one, we have a ten temptation to, to doubt God, right? Pride also is that, you know, it's interesting. Um, pride manifests in different ways. We often think of pride in the, in the Muhammad Ali version of pride. You know, I'm the greatest and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but pride also manifests in the woe is me version. The very tearful, my life's the worst. No one loves me. No one cares for me. The world calls that a lack of self-esteem. God just calls that pride in humble clothes. Um, it, it comes from the heart that says, it's pride in this sense. I deserve better than I am getting. Right? And, and so we have to be careful. Pride, we're tempted to pride on both. And it can feel very humble because we're down. But we're down because we didn't get what we wanted to get. There's a whole list of those, but I think it's helpful to see, again, my point in saying all of that with 
showing the sins of both is to say it's not about getting the thing, the object that you want to get. That won't solve your heart problem. You'll still have the heart problem if you don't turn from it. Finally, lesson number three, I want to leave you time to discuss here, so I'm going to move forward. Lesson number three is sanctified view of contentment's source. A sanctified view of contentment's source. And here we come to the most famous verse in Philippians and the secret that Paul has learned. He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Uh, You probably have that verse memorized you may have a t-shirt with that verse on it. It's a good verse. It's, it's worthy of a t-shirt and more. It probably says, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ultimately, it is talking about Christ, but literally it, the word is Him there, the pronoun Him. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. Again, notice how exhaustive this is. I can do all things. He wants to, to be inclusive of every circumstance. Now, here's the thing. This is obviously a, a verse that is, that's misused so often. And you see it on all kinds of things. Uh, boxers will use it. You know, they'll have it taped under their eyes. I've seen cage fighters, you know, claim this verse, which is very odd if you think about it. By Christ's strength, I'm going to beat this man within an inch of his life, right? That, that's an odd thing to say. Um, but clearly we know that's not what the verse means. When he says all... He means all within the confines of the context we've been talking about. It is inclusive. It's just it's inclusive in the issue of contentment. And so the strength that Christ is providing here is is not strength to scale a wall or win a football game, but it is strength to to gain the spiritual maturity necessary by the strengthening of Christ to truly be content and satisfied regardless of your circumstances. And that, my friends, is a good gift. I would rather have that gift than to win the football game, to be honest. This is a much more important gift than we often give credit to this verse 4. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, of course, this includes possessions such as money and things like that, but it goes far beyond that. Your job situation, your house, your living situation, your car, your marriage, the behavior of your children... Um, your, your desire for deeper relationships, whatever it may be, all of those categories fit into the word all here when he says he's taught me in all circumstances to maintain contentment. You know, there's a, a famous uh, quote. There's certain quotes that get wrapped into our verbiage in Christendom that are not always biblical. And one of those is a common phrase where we try to encourage one another by saying things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Right? That's a common phrase. God will, don't worry, brother. God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, I understand where that comes from. I think it's a, a, an attempt to apply 1 Corinthians 10.13, that there's no temptation that's overtaken you except what's common to man. Um, but even there in that verse, the emphasis is not on the fact that you have all this inherent strength and therefore God knows that and He's just going to take you up to the, the, the very edge of your personal strength. That's not the point of that at all. The point is God Himself is all-powerful and He'll give you things that are far beyond anything that you personally can handle. You ever had one of those? I've had some of those. I can't handle this. But guess who can? He can. 
That's why Paul says the secret is not God will give me only what I can handle. The secret is God will strengthen me. In Christ, Christ will strengthen me in the midst of whatever He gives me. So it's not about me having uh, this power. It is about the power coming through Him who strengthens me. The secret of the contentment is Christ. It is to know and love and value Christ above all things. Because when that happens, it resets your value system. So suddenly, the most valuable thing in in the world to me is Christ, and I already have Him, and He lives in me, and He loves me, and He cares for me, and I trust Him. And so that means if I don't have that thing, it means He's chosen not to give it to me, and I trust His heart and His wisdom better than mine. And so I must not need that. It would not be good for me to have it. Otherwise, I would have it already. That, that's what Paul has learned. He's learned about his Savior. He's learned to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and to depend upon Him and not people or things. doesn't mean we don't love people. doesn't mean we don't even need people. God gives us relationships. But it means ultimately we realize at the end of the day the thing we need most we already have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that this secret exists, this this strengthening exists, and yet many Christians don't seem to have it, is because circumstances come, they're difficult, they tempt us, and we give in to that temptation to focus on the circumstance rather than focusing on Christ. But if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And if you will discipline yourself to truly do what Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is, God knows what you need before you even pray. He will care for you in the way that's best. You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and trust Him. That's the idea here. So let me just finish with some some questions to help you work this through and some some. Uh, positive actions that you can do to put on this. And then I want to give you a few minutes to to pray with one another. So just a couple of questions to help us uncover where we might currently be dealing with discontentment. And I'm going to use various examples. But number one, does your contentment level rise and fall with your bank account? When the number goes up, you're feeling pretty good. When the number goes down, you're feeling pretty bad. Let me ask you this. Do you spend more time giving thanks to God for what He is doing in your life or more time mulling over the things you wish He would change? Is there any anger or bitterness currently in your heart towards God over your circumstances? Have you given in to the lie that you deserve more or better than what you currently have? And then finally, do you view your circumstances as an opportunity or an obstacle to serving and loving God? An opportunity or an obstacle? Those are some questions just to kind of help us see, because sometimes we don't see our hearts clearly. Our hearts are deceptive. Some questions like that can help us say, ah, That's where my discontentment struggle lies. But here, let me just leave you with the positive. What do we do about it? We can all struggle with discontentment, but what do you do? Well, 
so it's actually simpler than we may think. Number one, don't neglect the basic disciplines of the faith. Don't neglect the basic... They're the basic disciplines of the faith for a reason. Why do we always say, read your Bible, meditate on the truth, pray, fellowship with other believers? Why do we say those things? It's because those are the basic building blocks of sanctification. God has given us the gift of His Word, and He works in and through His Word. So it makes complete sense that if you cut, if you withdraw and you cut yourself off from the Word and you stop reading the Word, stop meditating on the Word, it won't be long at all before you're struggling with these sins because you've cut yourself off from the basic means of grace God's given to us through His truth. So if you've, if you're, if you've neglected those things, the basic things of Bible study and prayer, get back on the wagon with those things, following hard after the Lord. Secondly, cultivate a robust understanding and trust in the providence of God. Cultivate a robust understanding and trust in the providence of God. Begin to view life through the lens of the sovereign hand of God, that everything, everything from the flat tire to the guy that cuts you off in traffic to the guy that gets the promotion when really everyone in the company knew you deserved it more than him because he's the nephew of somebody that's important. What, all those things, all of it is all in the hand of a sovereign God. Yes, people make choices, they make decisions, but God works in and through those decisions to bring about His ultimate means and plan. Do you believe that? Because that is a crucial theological key to walking in contentment. That this is what God has for me. And God never does second best. This is what He knows I need for my spiritual growth, life, and effectiveness. Then that's what I'll do. We have to have that perspective. If you want to read on that issue, there's some great books that deal with providence. Piper has a massive tome that he just, a big red book. It's about yay big. Um, it's called Providence, and I'm reading it now. I'm like 100 pages in, and I've barely opened it. Um, but it's great. It's really, really good. He basically tracks providence from Genesis 1 all the way into the Revelation. So it's, it's a great book. Uh, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges is another one. Uh, and then Knowing God by J.I. Packer deals a lot with God's sovereignty and how God interacts. Just a couple more. Number three, cultivate a deepening love and value for Christ Himself. Do we truly love Christ more than all things? Do we meditate on Christ throughout the day? When our flesh tempts us, do we turn our mind away from the circumstance back to Christ? Paul says, he considers the loss of all those things that we discussed earlier, all the things he gave up. He said, those things, those are trash to me compared to knowing and loving Christ Jesus, my Lord. That has to be our perspective. Number four, actively fill your mind with truth and not your circumstance. Actively fill your mind with truth and not your circumstance. This is why, and I'll emphasize this almost every time we meet, and that is, I cannot tell you a more helpful thing for your sanctification than to memorize and meditate daily on the Scriptures. Think of it like this. If you were in an active war zone and you had a weapon that you had learned to use effectively for your protection and defense, you would never walk anywhere without carrying that weapon. Some of you guys are military guys. 
And I'm, I'm not, but I've been told this. And I, and I would do this instinctively. <laughs> if I have a weapon and I'm in a scary place, I do this when I'm hunting, when I'm walking out at night. It's like something's coming out to get me, right? Same thing as a Christian. Why would we ever go into the battle with sin uh, unequipped when we have all the equipment that we need? But it takes the mental effort of discipline, memorize the Word, however slowly it is. If it's one verse a month, I don't care. Memorize the Word and meditate on it daily so that when temptation comes, you can turn your mind immediately from that temptation to truth and keep it on the truth until the temptation subsides. This is how we fight sin. Now, I'm going to leave you with that. I haven't left you a long time, but it was a few minutes left. Sorry. These, these will be the longest lessons I teach on these days, and they'll be shorter on the, other, on the Psalm 19 days and the book study days. I'll give you more time to discuss, but on these days I'll teach a little longer. But I, what I want you to do is break up into groups of four to six, uh, hopefully with some different guys. Even though It's okay if some of them are the same, but at least one or two new guys just to get to meet some new people. And um, share, particularly, let's talk about in our prayer requests, issues of discontentment. Is there anything in your life that you would ask God to say, you know what, I realize I'm struggling to trust the Lord in this. Share that, and then pick a couple of guys to pray, and then we'll close our time, okay? So go ahead, take a minute to do that.